morning. I am happy to be with you to share God's Word. I hope you'll bear with my uh, raspiness and other sorts of uh, problems. God sometimes gives our bodies ailments, I think, so that He can demonstrate His own power, because obviously if we're able to accomplish anything when we're not feeling very good, then it's got to be uh, to His praise and glory. And I do hope that you'll be blessed by the preaching of the Word today. I would like to talk to you this morning about God's reading in the Old Testament <clears throat> as well as reading in the New. We begin in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel the second chapter. God's word at Daniel chapter 2 and verse 31. Here as it is to you, God's very word. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This image, which was mighty and whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the aspect thereof was terrible. As for this image, its head was of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver its belly and its thighs of brass, its legs of iron, its feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon its feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken in pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. <clears throat> this is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art king of kings, unto whom the God of heaven hath given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory, and wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens hath he given into thy hand, and hath made thee to rule over them all. Thou art the head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, forasmuch as iron breaketh in pieces, and subdueth all things and as iron that crusheth all things, shall it break in pieces and crush. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, forasmuch as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. <coughs> and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. <coughs> And whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed, but they shall cleave one to another, even as iron doth not mingle with clay. And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. 
and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Turn now to Daniel, the seventh chapter, where I'd like to read just two verses for you, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, there came with the clouds of heaven one like unto a son of men, and he came even to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him, given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Our reading in the New Testament is found in the Gospel of Matthew, and we have two texts there to consider. First of all, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, beginning at the 31st verse, again hear the word of God. Another parable set he before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is less than all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of heaven come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spake unto The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. <clears throat> and then turn to Matthew, the 28th chapter, where we begin reading at the 16th verse. But the eleven disciples went into Galilee, into the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, though some doubted. And Jesus came to them and spake unto them, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And thus far the reading of God's word. I told you before we read the scripture that I wanted to talk about a possible mission. I wonder how many of you, when you heard that title, thought of the TV program that was popular, I guess, in the 70s and early 80s, Mission Impossible. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm telling you something about myself. I really enjoyed watching that that show. I mean, I knew it was, you know, totally unrealistic, but, you know, we get some kind of enjoyment out of seeing, you know, a plan come together, as uh, the A-team used to say, and uh, people able to, uh, to use all these different skills and disguises and so forth in modern technology to overcome dictators and all sorts of horrible things that are going on in the world. <clears throat> but, you know, if you ever watched that program, if you enjoyed it as I did, you realized, even though at the very beginning of every program, uh, the fellow who was masterminding things would get his little message on tape that self-destructed and so forth, that uh, though the program portrayed the, um, uh, the challenge as really impossible one, um, and that's why the United States government would never own up to any failure, people would get caught for it, that though it was portrayed, it always appeared to be impossible, at the end of the program, 
every single one of those uh, projects was successfully accomplished. And I uh, think that there may be a modern parable there for us as Christians. Because if we have read the scriptures, today we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel and uh, the book of Matthew in particular. But if we've read the scriptures and what they say about the kingdom of God and what's to be accomplished in this world, you know, we have a tendency to look around at the world, to hear the six o'clock news, and realize how bad things are. I mean, <clears throat> just look how bad things are in the church and even worse in the world and seeming to get worse and worse. <clears throat> we read the Bible, we look at the world, and I think the tendency is to think this is an impossible mission. It appears like there's no way it could ever be accomplished. I mean, let's get serious. Let's get realistic. In this world, with all of its sin and rebellion and the fact that people don't read their Bibles and they don't live life and people make fun of Christianity and ridicule it and persecute it and all these political problems and economic problems and on and on and on it goes, they say, it just can't be. I mean, we're reading one thing in the Bible and seeing another thing in the world. The kingdom of God is just not going to have the kind of influence and impact and growth in this world that the Bible speaks of. It's obviously an impossible mission. But I want to assure you that at the end of the program, just as at the end of the TV um, show every week, you will find that the mission will be successfully accomplished. Now, in the terms of the TV program, it was always in, you know, man's cleverness and strength and ability and, and that sort of thing, and we know that men really can't do all that, and that's what makes the TV series fascinating. But I'm speaking to you this morning about God's apparently impossible mission. But with God, all things are possible. And so when God tells us, you are to do the following, you are to expect the following of my kingdom, though it appears impossible, not going to the fact that it looks impossible. The fact is when God gives us the mission, all things are possible with him. I'd like us to look at the book of Daniel and the book of Matthew this morning. First of all, considering how Daniel reveals the divine Messiah's <clears throat> kingdom. Daniel gives us some information in chapters 2 and 7 of um, his prophecy about the coming Messiah and the nature of the Messiah's kingdom. So let's turn back to the Old Testament, Daniel the second chapter again, as you heard it in your scripture reading this morning. And I'd like to take a few moments to point out some of the characteristics of this kingdom that Daniel speaks of. Daniel 2, <clears throat> verse 34, tells us that the Messiah's kingdom is going to be a divine kingdom, not a kingdom of human effort. Daniel 2, verse 34. As Daniel is interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, he says, Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon its feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them in pieces. This is a stone that was not cut with human hands. The development of the stone as it breaks off from the mountain and then rolls down and destroys the image is not something that human hands have done. <clears throat> it's important for us to remember that the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not a human kingdom. It's not humanly devised. It didn't come about through human means. It does not advance in terms of human ability. It is simply not a human kingdom. It's cut without hands. 
That really needs to be stressed in our day and age because you'll be told over and over again by people that oppose the optimism that I'm going to be preaching today. The people who have that outlook and their various titles that are given to people these things, you'll be told that these people think they're going to bring in the kingdom of God. You'll be told that they think the church is going to bring in the kingdom of God. You'll even be told that they think that political power is going to bring in the kingdom of God. And all of these variations are variations on a slander. You know, there really is not a polite and a happy way to put it, but that is simply a lie. I do know that there have been, not as often as we think, but there have been throughout uh, history and sometimes in the late 1800s and early 1900s, people who thought they were bringing in the kingdom of God. But those who turn to the Bible and say, you know, this looks impossible, but God's going to do it, they don't think they're going to be able to accomplish it themselves. They very well know in all humility that they can't do anything apart from God. They know that the only way they came into the kingdom of God is by God changing their hearts, turning them around, and that if God does not exercise that same regenerating power, if he does not in any change in people's lives, they are not going to change. They will not change because of our persuasiveness. They will not change because of our political threats. They will not change because of the glory of the church and its programs and so forth. Nothing, nothing will advance the kingdom of God apart from the power of God himself. This is a human hands-off kingdom. It's a great privilege that we are part of this kingdom. Humans make up this kingdom, but they don't themselves control it. They don't enter it in their own strength. They don't advance it in their own strength. And Daniel makes that very clear. This stone, which stands for the kingdom of God, was not cut with human hands. Daniel secondly says, God is going to establish this kingdom. Look at verse 44. <clears throat> And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. <clears throat> Daniel tells us this is going to take place in the days of those kings. Well, I'm not going to dwell on this, but... That should make it very clear to you that Daniel is not talking about a kingdom that's going to be established beyond history. He is not talking about a kingdom that's going to come about when Jesus returns, to use New Testament terminology here, and to initiate the eternal state. Now, there are a number of people in Reformed churches and throughout the history of Reformed theology who have looked at the promises of God about his kingdom in the Bible and noting how glorious they are, semi-golden, um, as some people would say, and have concluded, therefore, this must be a kingdom that's beyond history, either beyond history because it's a heavenly kingdom right now, therefore not part of our mundane historical affairs, or beyond history in that it's going to be after Jesus returns in the new heavens and the new earth. But that isn't what Daniel says, is it? Daniel says, in the days of those kings, that is, while the empires are interacting with each other and succeeding each other in history, in those days, in the midst of history, God is going to do a work. And the emphasis now I want you to see is that God is going to establish this kingdom. God is not going to send down blueprints for us to establish the kingdom. 
God is not going to say, now I hope that you really do well, I've given you everything I can, the rest is in your hands. It says here, God is going to do the work. In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. In terms of what we read in our scripture reading in Daniel 2 and 7, we read as well that this God of heaven who will establish the kingdom will give the kingdom to a human king. Turn to chapter 7, verse 13. <clears throat> Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, there came with the clouds of heaven one like unto a son of man. He came even to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Daniel sees this glorious vision of someone being brought to the ancient of days, which is, of course, a, a very noble expression for the eternal one himself. The ancient of days is God. And someone is being brought into the very presence of God, and this is with the clouds of heaven that he's being brought into the presence of God. And the one who is brought, Daniel is very clear about this, is one like unto a son of man. Uh, that title all by itself is worthy of a series of sermons, by the way, in terms of how Jesus uses the title Son of Man from Daniel's prophecy right here uh, throughout his earthly ministry. We could spend a few weeks expounding that. I can't do that this morning, but I, I do want you to know there's a real rich uh, theological tradition to be explored there. <clears throat> But the point is, the expression, son of man, emphasizes that the king is a human king. You see, son of man, uh, for whatever else it means, and it means much more than this, but for whatever else it means, must be taken in its Hebraic expression as being someone that is a human being. And of course, that must have been astounding to Daniel's readers. Someone who is a human being will come into the very presence of the Ancient of Days and there receive from him a kingdom. So chapter 2 says the Ancient of Days, not using that language, but God will establish a kingdom in the days of the earthly empires. Chapter 7 tells us that at that time the kingdom he establishes will be given to an earthly ruler, to a human king. And what will happen when God has established his kingdom and turned it over to an earthly ruler? Back in chapter 2, verse 44, we read that this kingdom is going to supplant the sovereignty of all other empires. In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Okay, it's going to be a powerful kingdom that cannot be pushed off the face of the earth, nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people. Unfortunately, if, if I could speak a little tongue-in-cheek here, there are some people who believe that the kingdom of God has been established. They believe that it's not going to be overthrown by the forces of evil. They believe the church, if you will, of Jesus Christ will be able to withstand all the onslaught of the world to the end of the age. But then you see they stop reading this verse at this point. And they think that's the sovereignty of this kingdom, simply that it will never be destroyed. But that is not just half the truth. If that's all you believe, you don't believe the truth at all. Because you see, God does not set up a kingdom, according to Daniel, 
that is simply going to be their enduring to the end. It's not point. God says it will not be destroyed. But the reason it will not be destroyed is because notice this. God doesn't have a detente program. God doesn't have a program of peaceful coexistence. God realizes that his kingdom stands opposed to the kingdoms of this world. And one is going to gain the sovereignty. It's not as though we can all respect one another. And that's the myth of the late 20th century. You know, we can have all these warring worldviews and warring political philosophies and so forth. And what we can do is set up boundaries, and everybody will disrespect the boundaries, and you have this kingdom here and this kingdom there, and no one's going to make anything of it. If you believe that, I would invite you to spend a little bit of time in Northern Ireland. Remember back in the 1940s how the Catholic Protestant problem was settled by a division of Ireland into a northern and a southern Ireland. And of course there's been nothing but peace since then, right? It's not as though one gained the final ascendancy. How are things going in Korea these days? You know, divide Korea to north and south and that settles the problem, right? No, it doesn't settle the problem in the nature of the case kingdoms war with each other, one is going to want the upper hand. And when God puts his kingdom in this world in the days of those kings, God doesn't have this foolish idea that we can just have these boundaries and that his kingdom will be there and the kingdom of the world will be there and there will be peaceful coexistence and this kind of mutual respect for one another. One of them is going to have the sovereignty over the other. And according to the declaration of Scripture, the sovereignty will belong to God's kingdom. The end of verse 44, which many people don't pay attention to, is this. This kingdom shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. There's going to be a divinely established kingdom in the midst of history, one that God gives to a human king, and a kingdom which will supplant the sovereignty of all other empires. And then as we read in this verse, its dominion will be indestructible, will be universal, and everlasting. The kingdom is not going to sit still. It's going to grow until it fills the entire earth, and it will be an everlasting kingdom. Established in history, continuing into eternity. Chapter 7, verse 14, emphasizes this element of the kingdom as well. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, all the nations, all the languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And one more feature out of the book of Daniel before we turn to Matthew and chapter 2, going back to chapter 2, at verse 3, we are told that this kingdom, established in history by God, given to his messianic king, is going to have universal dominion, but it will be a growing kingdom. It will grow to fill the earth. Chapter 2, verse 35. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken in pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. 
First you have a stone that's broken off the side of a mountain. It rolls down and destroys this image, crushes it to dust, the wind blows it away, and then the stone grows into a mountain, and not just one mountain, but a mountain that fills the entire earth. The kingdom of God's messianic son is going to be established in history, and then it will grow and grow until it reaches universal proportions and will continue into all eternity. Look at Isaiah, the ninth chapter, verses 6 and 7. We're getting close to that time of year where a number of sermons will be preached out of this text. People like to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Sadly, they don't usually continue to the 7th verse to, to understand the nature of this, uh, this son that's going to be born. But we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, <clears throat> Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And now listen. Of the increase, of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from henceforth even forever. <clears throat> the Isaiah tells us the same thing that Daniel does in different language that there's going to be a government, a kingdom given, dominion given to this son who is mighty God. And of the increase, the growth of this government and peace, there will be no end. It's going to be a growing kingdom, increasing and increasing and increasing. And of the increase of the government and of peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from henceforth even forever. A kingdom established in history that grows, reaches universal proportions, and continues into eternity. That's what Isaiah says. Now the problem is that Daniel taught this, Isaiah taught this, but they taught it way back when, when people didn't know better. Alright? They go when people were still naive. They didn't know about nuclear warfare then. They didn't know about computers and they didn't know about, you know, the modern world and all the forms of evil and wickedness and debauchery and depravity that we see. You know what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar after he had given him this glorious picture of the kingdom of God growing to fill the earth? He said, the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof is sure. Daniel said, this is not going to seem very likely to you. But I assure you, there's no doubt about it. I have given you the infallible word of God. And it's interesting to me that when Isaiah finishes this declaration about the increase of the messianic kingdom, he says the zeal of Jehovah of hosts will perform this. This is not an impossible mission because it's God's mission. And God is zealous to see it performed. I don't want to uh, give you that I have something of a party spirit about eschatology as I come to preach to you today. I, I really do love my Christian brothers who don't yet see this glorious truth or affirm it, and, 
and my greatest desire is to see them change their mind, not so there'd be more people in one theological camp than another, but because I think that is really going to inspire their ministries, and I believe it's going to help the, the people of God and for us to be obedient and, and to be faithful and to do the things he wants us to do. But the fact of the matter is there are, um, there are some people who, after hearing the presentation of the success of the kingdom that the Bible has, they don't want to affirm it altogether. <clears throat> they want to say, well, we all hope it turns out that way. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard this expression. I don't want to get into theological schools here, but there are people who say, you know, I'm an optimistic homoanalyst. <laughs> I chuckle about that because, you know, what that is is an admission that homoanalyst is inherently pessimistic. It's kind of like, I don't want you to think I'm like that run-of-the-mill homoanalyst that is pessimistic. I'm an optimistic one. But when you push them about their optimism, you say, you mean that you believe with all your heart you have confidence that God is going to accomplish this? Oh, no. But I sure hope it turns out that way. What Isaiah says, the zeal of Jehovah of hosts will perform this. God is not an optimistic millennialist, is he? He is zealous to make sure this is done. Yes, it looks like an impossible mission, but because it's his mission, and he is God and has sovereignty over all, his zeal, he burns with desire to see this happen, and it will happen. You say, how does it come about? I'm sure most of you know how this is going to be fleshed out, but it's amazing to me that if you read Matthew's Gospel, Matthew now reveals to us this divine messianic king that Daniel was talking about. So let's... Um, Let's do a survey, a quick one this morning, of Matthew's Gospel, beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20-23. The context is Joseph contemplating a private divorce of his fiancée, Mary, because she has been found with child. But when he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Now all this has come to pass, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. <clears throat> How does Matthew open the story that he wants to tell? And Matthew's a really good writer. You know, I don't, I don't know how many novels you, there aren't many out that are real wholesome and edifying, I know, but, you know, the, the good, popular writers of novels know that they've got to grab your attention in that first chapter. There's got to be some kind of hook there. Now, how's this for a hook? A man finds that his fiancée is pregnant, and an angel visits him and says, no other man made her pregnant. The Holy Spirit gave her this child. What? That's pretty hard to believe, isn't it? In our day and age, there are people in the church that say they don't believe that. They don't believe in the virgin birth so forth. But this is what Matthew begins, if you will. It's a hook. We said, well, we want to know about this child. And all of this is taking place, the angel tells Joseph, in fulfillment of prophecy, particularly the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, which we didn't look at this morning. 
about a virgin giving birth to a child who will be called what? Mighty God, Emmanuel, the one who is with us as God. And so Matthew begins with this divine and yet human son. Remember what I told you before? Daniel had said it's going to be one like unto a son of man that receives this divine kingdom. Then chapter 2, verse 2. <clears throat> the wise men come from the east, and what is it that they come asking? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now read chapter 1 of Matthew and ask yourself, where did the Magi get this idea that it was a king of the Jews? They come, they know what they're looking for, and they properly call him king of the Jews. We're going to come back and go through Matthew, but I want you to turn to the end of Matthew's gospel for a second, to chapter 27, verse 11. <clears throat> this is at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in life. Jesus stood before the this is Pilate, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, You've said it. So Matthew begins very early in his gospel. People come looking for one who is the king of the Jews, and at the end of his ministry, he's asked the question, Are you the king of the Jews? Do we have this right? Jesus said, Right on the button. That's right, I'm the king of the Jews. Going back to the beginning of the gospel, notice that the one who is sought as the king of the Jews is worshipped by the Gentiles. The story of the Magi, of course, is an indication that those from around the world are going to come and bow down to this one who's been born as king of the Jews. And uh, correlated to that, look at Matthew 17:54. Now, that's not a very likely text. Why do I write those things down? <clears throat> well, we'll try to reconstruct this for a minute here. Yeah, it would be better to do this at home. Next time I'll write my notes right and bring it to you. Coming back to Matthew at the beginning, now chapter 3, verse 17. <clears throat> the one who has been born as a divine yet human son, the one who was born as king of the Jews and yet worshipped by the Gentiles, is now honored by God from heaven in chapter 3, verse 17. <clears throat> At his baptism, we read, Lo, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Remember how Daniel had said there is one who would come to the Ancient of Days and there he'd be honored by the Ancient of Days? Now the Ancient of Days owned this one who was born of Mary as his own son. And he says that he's well with him. <clears throat> and he is tempted following this in chapter 4. Look at verses 8 to 10 of chapter 4. Again, the devil takes him into an exceedingly high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Anyway, you know, Satan's a very wicked 
beings. Satan is very subtle. Satan is not stupid. You know why Satan made this kind of offer to Jesus? Because Satan realized very well that this is what Jesus had come into the world to gain. See, the point here is not that <clears throat> Jesus has no interest in being an earthly king and having the kingdoms of this world. Sometimes people look at it and say, see what a wicked thing Satan was offering him? Jesus doesn't want earthly kingship. That's not the point. Satan knows that Jesus came to gain this kingdom that Daniel had promised. And Satan's point is, I'll give you a shortcut to gaining it. Rather than you going through and being obedient to the Ancient of Days, to Jehovah, your father, rather than you going, if you will, the path of the cross and being raised from the dead and so forth, just bow down to me. You can imagine, you know, Satan kind of negotiating with Jesus. Look, just nod your head. One knee will be enough. Bow down to me and I'll give it all to you. Of course, it wasn't Satan's to give. <clears throat> that, that's what makes him the liar. It's not the lie that Jesus is going to have the kingdoms. Is that one that he could have it in this way or that Satan could give it? But the point is, at the temptation, we see the issue here. Will he be this king, this universal king that has been promised? Let's back up to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. You'll notice that he came to establish God's kingdom. In those days comes John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent. Why? Why repent? Why confess your sins and turn at this point? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the forerunner of the king. He says the kingdom is right in your midst. It's at hand. Chapter 4, verse 17. <clears throat> From that time began Jesus to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 23. And Jesus went about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of disease and all manner of sickness among the people. Those things are connected, by the way. He proclaimed the good news of God's kingdom and gave the sign that the kingdom was there and that he healed disease. And so Jesus came to establish God's kingdom. Chapter 5, verse 3. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit earth. Turn to chapter 12, verse 28. Jesus has cast out demons, another sign, of course, that he has conquered Satan and the kingdom of God has been established. But then his opponents accuse him of doing this by the power of Satan. Jesus responds in verse 28. But if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God come upon you. Now, I've often wondered how anybody can hold to this dispensational idea of a postponed kingdom when you read this verse. Here's Jesus' syllogism. He says, if I cast out demons by, you know, the finger of God, by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come. What's the next premise? I do cast out demons by the Spirit of God. I've just proven that to you, both in power and in theological argument. And then we're not supposed to draw the conclusion the kingdom of God has come? Jesus' whole point is the kingdom's arrived. John in preparation for him. Jesus proclaimed it. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He showed the signs of the kingdom. 
He gave the benefits of the kingdom to those who are meek, inheriting the earth. He dec he, his declaration is rather clear. He has established God's kingdom. And then in chapter 13, right after this, we've just looked at chapter 12, you notice that Jesus teaches now about the kingdom. <clears throat> Look at verse 11. And he answered and said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. He wanted his followers to understand the kingdom, but others would not catch on. They'd hear these stories and go, what's that all about? You know, they had no real interest, no insight. But Jesus offers this insight to his people. I'm not going to draw the conclusion that people who don't catch on are not Christians. In some cases, that's true. But there are Christians, sadly, those who are born again, those who do wish to honor the teaching of Scripture, who nevertheless read these parables and they don't get the point. Jesus said, I want you to know the nature of my kingdom. And we can't tell you everything about his kingdom in all the parables, but let me point out just a couple of things. Verse 32 says, Jesus expects that his kingdom will grow. Sound familiar? That's what we learned from Isaiah and Daniel, right? Of the increase of his government and peace. The stone will grow to be a mountain that fills the earth. Jesus affirms that Old Testament theological expectation when he says in verse 32 that his kingdom will grow. He likens it to a grain of mustard seed, which indeed is less than all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of heaven can come and lodge in the branches thereof. Not only will it grow, begins very small. Isn't that true historically? How big was the Christian church on the day in which Jesus was crucified? Well, you see, God's people had, in terms of covenant faithfulness, reduced to one person. You realize that? That's part of what we are supposed to learn from the fact that the Jews turn over their king to be crucified, and the disciples do what? They all flee. And I suppose we want to parenthetically make exception maybe for Jesus' mother. I don't know what you want to make of Mary's position. But in terms of the overall impression that the Bible is giving us, the covenant faithful people have now been reduced to one person. And then after he rises from the dead, <clears throat> how many people does the Christian church begin with? Well, it's not 12. One has already, you know, taken his own life. So now it's 11, maybe. But it didn't begin with 11. Some didn't believe at the very first, and you know the story of Doubting Thomas. He didn't believe until a week later. <clears throat> so what do we have, about 10? On one day it's one, <clears throat> pardon me, and then 10. The day, then on the day of Pentecost, 3,000. And on and on it goes. Now what is the Bible, I mean, do we ever put these things together and pick up the literary image? The kingdom of God, like a mustard seed, you can barely find it, it's so small. You know, I'm not real big into these areas, but I have looked at a mustard seed because I know what the mustard And it's absolutely true. You put that in your hand, and boy, you could lose it in the cracks of your hand. Some are so small. <clears throat> and yet it grows. 
Jesus says, my kingdom is going to be a growing kingdom. And when it grows up, it will be a huge tree. Secondly, Jesus says that his kingdom is going to permeate all things. Verse 33, another parable he spoke, saying the kingdom of heaven is likened unto leaven. I'm not real good in the kitchen. I wouldn't dare try to make bread, but I understand how bread is made. And I know that there's a, this remarkable quality about yeast, about leaven. And when you put yeast in a lump of dough, the dough doesn't just grow at one point, you know, like some kind of cancerous bulb, you know, in your bread, boop, right there. It permeates the dough. And Jesus says, my kingdom is going to grow to be very big, and like leaven, it's going to permeate everything. <clears throat> And then the Gospel of Matthew leads us to expect great personal increase for this kingdom that has been revealed through these various chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Look at Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. Matthew 25, at the 14th verse, For it is as when a man, going into another country, calls his own servants and delivers unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his several ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately he that received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. In like manner he also that received the two gained another two. But he that received the one went away and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of these servants cometh and maketh a reckoning with them. After a long time, the Lord of these servants cometh and maketh a reckoning with them. And he that received the five talents came and brought another five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents, lo, I have gained another five talents. <coughs> His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will set thee over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And he also that received the two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Lo, I have gained another two talents. He unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will set thee over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And he also that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou didst not sow, and gathering where thou didst not scatter. And I was afraid, and went away and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, thou hast thine own. But his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked, slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I did not scatter. Thou ought therefore to have put my money to the bankers, and at my coming I should have received back my own with interest. Take ye away therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him that hath the ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not, even that which he hath shall be taken away. And cast ye out the profitable servant into the outer darkness, there shall be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. What does Jesus expect of us as he's gone away on a long journey? You know, hold the fork, right? Kind of sit tight. 
protect the little that we have as Christians. After all, we're nothing but a remnant in this world. And the best thing is for us to put up you know, these barriers against the world and, and hope that we can just hold on to the little that we have. Does that fit this parable? You know, sadly, and this that ought to be somewhat frightening to certain theologians, I think. What Jesus says is, if that's your mentality, you should be cast out into the outer darkness. Because what I expect you to do, if you understand who I am, if you understand the nature of my kingship, if you know the nature of my kingdom, when I invest things in you, I expect you to go out and increase. This is the best text for church growth that I can imagine. Not based on all these kind of humanistic assumptions and sociological surveys and statistics. Forth. Jesus says, you don't know what the nature of my kingdom is. If you think you can just hold on to the little you have, and I'll be happy if you can hold on to that till the end. I expect to see growth, obviously, in your personal lives. But move on to the next point. Matthew, the 28th chapter, at the very end of Matthew's gospel, I haven't been able to do all the justice to the literary characteristics of the gospel that I'd like, but at least I hope you have a taste of how Matthew is developing this theme of kingship and the nature of the kingdom. He begins with a king of the Jews worshipped by the Gentiles, and he ends with what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is his vindication that he is the king. And when the eleven disciples went to Galilee and there found Jesus as he had appointed them to find him. They worshipped him. It's an interesting expression, although some doubt it. And when Jesus comes to them, what's his declaration? <clears throat> All authority. Maybe your translation's power, because sadly in English, we don't have an English word that does the, the, the same work of the Greek expression, exousia because it's a combination of these ideas. It is power to accomplish, but also the right to accomplish. And so he has authority and power. Jesus says, all of that, all exousia, power and authority, might and right, all of this has been given to me in heaven. <clears throat> and I'm going away to rule in heaven, and someday I'll come back, and that kingdom will be seen on earth. Boy, you'd better not let your preacher get away with that. Isn't it amazing? The words are so clear, and yet people will read this, and then they'll preach a sermon that I've just given you a thumbnail sketch of. Jesus rules in heaven, and someday he's going to come back and rule on earth. What does Jesus say? All power and authority, all might, all right, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So what's the king of the Jews who's been vindicated by his resurrection, who declares that he is now king over all the earth, what does he want us to do? He says, I want the Gentiles now to come and worship me. I want them to be brought into my kingdom. And so you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so let's just look at this mission that the king has defined for us. In the first place, the mission that Jesus defines for his people. In terms of this messianic kingdom prophesied by Daniel and Isaiah and now brought to fulfillment in history as Matthew's gospel tells us, this mission as defined by the king himself is not narrowly individualistic. <clears throat> 
Jesus doesn't say, go out there and find a few individuals who will now believe these things. You know, a few brands, you know, plucked from the fire, as it were. What does he say? He all nations brought to him. Now, you may not wish to. Some people would argue you can't read this Greek expression of nations and their socio-political relationships. Well, I'm not sure that you can, but I, I don't want to necessarily put the emphasis on that. The point is, Jesus expects disciples to be made not of individual people, but of whole groups of people. The Gentiles, if you want to interpret the Greek word in that way. He doesn't ask that we find a few Gentiles. He says, I want the Gentiles categorically to follow me. The mission is not narrowly individualistic. We have not been obedient to the mission Jesus gives us if all of our evangelistic interest is simply to find a few individuals. Our goal is to be nothing less but to see all the nations of the world worship Jesus Christ. Oh, don't be so unrealistic, Dr. Bronson. That's an impossible mission. Secondly, notice that Jesus does not expect to be followed simply as a Savior. Well, if we were to read this as many fundamentalistic and even many Reformed churches understand the mission of the church in the world, Jesus would never have said, go and make disciples of all nations. Make believers of all nations, not disciples. And teach them what? To trust me with all their hearts. No, teach them to observe, to obey everything that I've taught you. Jesus wants those who are going to be discipled and disciplined and those who obey him. In this whole lordship salvation controversy, the Great Commission ought to settle it for us. Notice Jesus doesn't call for us to go out and get people to believe in him as their savior. He says, go disciple them that I might be their lord. Well, but Dr. Bonson, don't you see, that's just an impossible mission. Thirdly, notice that as the king defines this mission for the church, he doesn't want authority simply over the church. Now, they're the church. Again, a whole other sermon might be preached on this, that as people are brought into the kingdom, notice they're to be baptized. This whole idea that you can be part of the kingdom of God and then just turn your nose up to the church or ignore the church is not biblical. People enter the kingdom through the doors of the church. I don't believe the kingdom is simply the church. But I do believe that the keys of the kingdom are held by the church. If you belong to the kingdom of God, you had better go to church, be baptized, and be regular there. But of course, you need to do more than that. The kingdom of God is beyond the church. It's not simply authority over the church. Teach them to observe whatever I have commanded you. Make the nations as a whole obedient to me. Dr. Bonson, that's just simply an impossible mission. Fourthly, you notice that according to Jesus, the kingdom is not simply future. All power and authority will one day be mine, Jesus says, right? No! He says it's not mine. He doesn't expect the kingdom to be his down the road somewhere. He says, I've begun my reign. I've entered in into the victory of my kingdom. I've been raised from the dead, showing that death cannot hold me. And so you are to realize that you begin to enjoy the fruits and benefits of the kingdom now, not just in the future. Jesus doesn't simply want a witness made to him. He wants disciples to follow him. 
And notice he doesn't say it's good enough if they follow a portion of his commands. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And might I just sneak one little thought in here to you? All of what Jesus commands us includes Jesus saying, don't you dare take anything away from the least commandment of the Old Testament. And so if we follow everything Jesus teaches, that means we have to be whole Bible Christians. We have to take what he has taught the apostles and what he says about the continuing authority of the Old Testament. And that's what we're to teach all the nations. And so what am I getting at here? Well, I really haven't begun to preach my sermon because all this has really been just build up till you finally can understand that at the end of Matthew's Gospel, what Jesus gives us is nothing less than an all-encompassing program for the building up of the church, for individual conversion and growth, and the, and the Christianizing of our civilization. That's what the Great Commission's all about. And that's why I said it's an impossible mission. You know, humanly, this can't be done. You expect, I mean, look at your church here. I love you all, and I hope that you'll continue to have me back. But do you think the world's impressed with uh, the number of people that are meeting in this little catacomb today? Uh, it, it's got to be very easy for you to think, oh yeah, you know, pie in the sky. How can you believe those sorts of things? And look at the churches that are real big. I, I know I can't say this 100%, but generally speaking, you're aware of the fact that churches that are very big are not really good in terms of and, and nurturing their people and teaching the whole counsel of God and so forth. How could we ever believe that Jesus calls on us to see the building up of the church, individual conversions in a day where many evangelicals don't even believe in hell anymore? And so, I mean, you wonder, what is the gospel all about? What are people being rescued from, if not the wrath to come? And so, individual conversions in our day, the building up of the church, and then of all things, Many churches would say, we don't want this. And those who would say, well, we'd like it, would say, but it will never happen. The Christianization of civilization, that's what Jesus says. All the nations are to be my disciples and obey all that I have commanded, which is, of course, the Bible from cover to cover. What a vision for evangelism. What a vision for a Christian worldview and the living out of our faith in all areas of life. What a vision for the completion of the cultural mandate. And the only problem is it's impossible. Or is it? I'm going to leave you with two thoughts here. Jesus tells you that this mission, as grand, as glorious, as all-encompassing as it is, this vision is not an impossible one for two reasons. First of all, because of his power. And secondly, because of his presence. If you understand the power and the presence of the Savior with the church, then you really shouldn't have any doubt that this is going to be done. You may doubt that you will be faithful in doing it, but you should not doubt that the program will be fulfilled. When Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, what has he predicated that upon? What is the premise? What is the foundation? upon which he gives that order. He has just said, all exousia, the Greek word, all power and authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he has all power? Can Jesus do all things? Nothing can oppose? Well, he's just been raised from the dead. <clears throat> Death does have the upper hand over Jesus. Satan does not have the upper hand over Jesus. We've already seen from the gospel that sickness and disease do not have the upper hand over Jesus. 
The elements of this world do not. When Jesus is awakened because the waves are going to, you know, um, capsize the boat, he stands up and he commands the waves and the sea becomes calm. Jesus says, all power is mine. Nothing in this world is greater than me. He's even greater than the human heart. You know, we might think, well, the last bastion, you see, of resistance. But you see, Jesus simply sends the Holy Spirit, blows like the wind, and the Spirit changes people. And those who are dead live again. You know Jesus does that, don't you? Because he did it to you. All power is mine. I have power over death, power over Satan, power over disease, power over the material elements, power in the spiritual realm. I control the hearts of men. Now, when you think about this on that, rather than the 6 o'clock news, rather than the discouraging results of evangelism or how small your church might be, if you'll look at the power of the Savior, then you can believe that this mission is not impossible. It's rather God's mission, and therefore will be accomplished, because Jesus has everything he needs to do it. Now, if Jesus has everything he needs to do it, why would he tell us to go out and accomplish this and then not empower the church to do it? The second thing you need to remember is that Jesus, who has all power in heaven and on earth, says, I'm with you to the end of the age. It's not as though this Jesus, who is omnicompetent, has every ability and power to accomplish this, now goes off to heaven and he says, well, let's see how you do on your own. Jesus says, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You will never be left alone. Now, of course, the disciples might have thought at one point, well, Jesus, but you're going off to heaven. He says, but I won't leave you without what? A comforter. One will come to take my place. The power of the Holy Spirit will be yours, and that is spirit. So I am with you always to the end of the age. We believe in the power of Christ, and if we believe in the presence of Christ, then we must believe that this mission that I've been laying out and elaborating for you this morning is not at all impossible. It's not a question of whether the world will be Christianized. It's only a question of when. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would hasten the day when the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We confess from the heart and ask that you would forgive us for our faithlessness and not believing it as fully as we should. We do confess, Lord Jesus, that you have all power and authority in heaven and on earth right now and that you are true to your promises and you are present with us and all others who faithfully call on you for salvation that you are with your church and will never abandon it even to the end and that therefore your church has all the resources necessary to accomplish this great and this vision of a world that has been brought back to submission to God himself we glorify you Lord Jesus King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray in your most blessed name.